0: Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lemma Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're here at the end of the Gospel of Mark, and at the end of Jesus' life as well. And even though there isn't a whole lot of dialogue here, uh, there's there's actually a lot going on here that's usually Mark's way of telling the story. He packs a lot into uh, the, the setting of the story, the way in which the, the plot unfolds, and then at the end, the application of that to the readers. And, and this is what we have here. Um, we'll look at the setting of his death, we'll look at the manner of his death, and lastly, the, the effects of his death, and that means the, the applications of his death for, for our lives. Okay? The setting of his death. What is the setting? What is Mark communicating through that? The manner of his death. How did he die? What is the significance of that? And the effects of his death. What applications does his death have for us? So first, the setting. Now notice first of all in verse 33, it says that it was the sixth hour. Right? Now during this time, the first hour was 6 a.m. So sixth hour would be noon. And that's the hottest time of the day. The sun's at the highest point. It's it's. it's it's crazy hot, it's like July in Georgia, and the sun is bright. Now, what happens, though, strangely and mysteriously, is the sun goes dark, okay? And there's this veil of darkness that covers the whole land, whole land. And it says the darkness lasted until the ninth hour, meaning for three whole hours. So it couldn't have been, as you know, some people might think, a solar eclipse, which only lasts, what, a few minutes? Plus this is around the Passover feast and that's when, that's all, that always landed around full moon and you don't have solar eclipses when you have full moon. And all that to say, this was not a natural phenomenon. Okay? Uh, and the people then were not ignorant of this. They knew enough about the natural world. It was clear to them and that, that's what Mark is indicating here. This darkness was an inexplicable sp- supernatural darkness. A supernatural darkness, which means it's a darkness with spiritual implications. Okay? Now, st- Quick side note here, there's absolutely nothing in the Bible that indicates that you should sort of infuse these spiritual meanings into every kind of weather, okay? So no need for you to read into the snowfall yesterday, okay? Uh, there's really nothing you have to over-spiritualize about. right? The temperature was low. <laughs> there's moisture in the air, moisture in the atmosphere, and then the tiny ice crystals fell, that's it. Um, but this event in Mark 15... It's not natural like that, okay? Mark's bigger point is, think about the spiritual meaning, this very, very spiritual event, this very non-natural event, okay? And he's speaking, of course, to the Jews who were the first to witness this um, because they would have known the allusions here, the allusions to the Old Testament prophecies concerning this very setting, okay? There are Old Testament prophecies that are very clear about this, Darkening of the sun, accompanied by the coming of God's judgment upon evil, and that judgment falling upon a certain someone. Okay, that's all throughout the Old Testament, so give you an example. Amos, chapter 8, there God pronounces judgment by saying this, quote, the sun will go down at noon, which is eerily, same time indicated in our passage, and darken the earth in broad daylight, and the whole land will be darkened. And the day will be made like the morning for an only son. Meaning, basically a funeral for an only child. Sun will be darkened at noon. There will be a funeral for an only child. Isaiah 13 is another one where it talks about the day of the Lord, a cruel day of wrath and judgment, which will make the land desolate. How? The stars will not give their light and the sun will be dark at its rising. The sun, when it's supposed to be at its highest point, at its rising will be dark, and God will punish the world for its evil. Okay. You see where Mark is pointing us to with all this with, this, with this setting alone, to all these Old Testament prophecies. He's not just saying, see what an amazing supernatural event this is. He's saying, see how Jesus is supernaturally fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies. So, just in that alone, without any sort of human agents, without any spoken dialogue, Mark is showing us how the scriptures are being fulfilled here at the setting of the cross, the setting of Jesus' death, and how this climactic event has always been anticipated in the Old Testament. He's showing us essentially how Jesus is the common thread that weaves through the entirety of scripture. Jesus is the one prophesied in Amos. Jesus is the one prophesied in Isaiah. In fact, he is, from the very beginning, the offspring of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent. He's the son of David who will rule in God's eternal kingdom. He's the ancient of days prophesied about in Daniel. He's the great light that shines in the darkness prophesied in Isaiah. He's the spotless animal without blemish that was offered on every single altar. And he's the perfect priest, prophet, and king that the people of God have always needed and never got from fallen humanity. All of the scriptures, all of Israel's history was always pointing to Jesus. And that's why in John chapter 5, for example, Jesus says to the Jews, you diligently study the scriptures, but you don't understand. It's all testifying about me. And in Luke 24, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, I like to say, at least when I first meet somebody for the first time, and try to explain the principle of Christ-centered interpretation of the Bible, reading, reading Christ in every page of the Bible, that Jesus is sort of like, just bear with me here, he's like Nick Fury in the entire Marvel Universe. Okay? He was there in the very first Iron Man movie, in the post credit scene, Samuel Jackson, boom. And then from, from there on, every single movie, he's there. Or he's lurking underneath or somewhere. He's either concealed in it or revealed in it. Every Marvel movie. And not just the, 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 the future movies, even in the throwback one, what, what was that one? Captain Marvel. They go back to the 90s, right, when Blockbuster used to exist. Guess who's there? Nick Fury is there. He's everywhere, right? He's the, he's the glue, as it were, that sort of holds this Marvel universe together, okay? And then, of course, he is the one, therefore, who assembles all the Avengers, right? I know this sounds very sophomoric, but you get it, are you? Like, you get the point, right? Jesus is basically the Samuel L. Jackson of the Bible. He's, right, don't quote me on that, but you get the point, right? He's everywhere. He's the glue that holds everything together. He's the one assembling all the prophets, all the Psalms, all the apostles together to tell one story about our universe. It's about him saving sinners through his death, okay? That's the significance of this setting of Jesus' death. He's fulfilling all the scriptures which have been testifying uh, concerning him. All right. That's point one. Point two, we looked at the setting, right, and the significance. Let's look at the manner of his death. It says in verse 34, at the ninth hour, okay, which means three whole hours of being nailed to the cross, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, this is one of the very few things that Jesus says while he was on the cross, right? And it's the only one that Mark chooses to highlight. Why? Why is Mark highlighting this? For one, considering that crucifixions were normally marked by screams, just sheer rage, excruciating pain, wild curses, and things like that, this cry of Jesus really stands out. Okay? Because here's what it does. It mixes a very deep sense of despair, with a very deep sense of intimacy. Because listen to what he's crying out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, which sounds very intimate. Why have you forsaken me? Which is very depressing. First of all, that's Jesus quoting Psalm 22 very directly. It's a messianic psalm. Um, it's a cry of someone suffering at the hands of evil men who's at the same time suffering from the silence of God amidst that suffering. It's, it's a paradoxical psalm. It couples this deep sense of despair and a deep sense of intimacy with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what Jesus is expressing here. Okay, The cry is, my God, my God. And, and notice he's not crying, right, and never crying. My hands, my hands, or my feet, my head, or... My feelings. My God. My God. Somehow, something more urgent and important and immediate to him than his own physical suffering, which again is excruciating. It's where we get the word. Crucifixion is where we get the word excruciating. Somehow, something else is on his mind and that's his God. My God. Think about that. Only an incredibly... Intimate relationship can draw this much attention from someone suffering from this much pain. And for Jesus, it was His Father. It was His Heavenly Father. He calls Him so affectionately. Right? This, is how, this is how people back then called, called out to one's spouse or one's child. My, my wife, my husband, my, my son, my daughter. And it's also used by God to address this covenantal relationship with His people. You shall be my people, and I shall be Your God. It almost sounds like a wedding vow. It's incredibly intimate language. And because it's incredibly intimate, what he says next is incredibly depressing. Why have you forsaken me? Okay. Now, we all have different levels of love, right? Um, or hierarchies of love. We have acquaintances. We have relatives. We have neighbors. We have friends. We have, then we have best friend. We have spouse and children And because the degree of intimacy is different depending on what you're talking about, there's also a different enjoyment in each of these relationships and also, logically, uh, a varying degree of grief and terror at the loss of these relationships. So the greater and deeper the love, the greater and deeper the grief and the terror of losing that love. If one of you were to come to me one day and say, I, I'm done with you. I'm never coming back to see ever again. Uh, see you later, bye. That, of course, that would hurt me. Right? Of course, I'd be affected by that. But if my wife were to say that to me, I don't want to see your sorry face ever again, never talk to you again. That would affect me on a whole other level, right? The, the more intimate the relationship, the greater... The grief, the greater the terror. And did you know that God the Father and God the Son, along with the God the Spirit, were for all eternity, from all eternity, enjoying the most intimate love relationship there ever was? Infinitely more intimate than a relationship between the husband and the wife. See, all of our relationships have a beginning. All of our, that means it's finite. And we can say a lot of great things about our our romantic relationships or our relationship with our children, our parents, but what we can't say is that our love is somehow built into the very fabric of the universe. But God's love was. His love preceded the foundation of the world. It's what actually founded the world. In love he predestined us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Love was eternally a part of God's essence, and that's what the son enjoyed in his relationship to the Father. That's what the Son enjoyed from all eternity. Now, this, this is gonna sound a little bit like a side note, but I promise you it's relevant. Okay? I promise you, just hang with me. A lot of people, today, religious or not, uh, they're pretty receptive of this idea that God is love. God is love. Even skeptics are open to this idea that if there were a God, if there were a God, He ought to be a God of love, okay? Because, you know, uh, love is supreme. So if there is a supreme being, then then he would have love. And then the the argument would take up this conclusion, which is it's wrong to say, therefore, that the Christian conception of God is the only correct one and everyone else is wrong. That's not loving. But you know what's really ironic about this? What's really ironic about this is the only way you can say God is love The only way you can truly say God is love, essentially, and hold on to the supremacy of love and the eternality of love in God is if you hold on to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Why? This is not new. This is a point that C.S. Lewis argues in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, the words, God is love, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Why? Love is something that one person has for another person. And if God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. At best, he was a narcissist, a lover of oneself. And a lover of self from all eternity is not by nature loving. In other words, only in the biblical conception of God, the Christian conception of God, do we have a God of selfless love, a self-giving love, true love. A God who isn't needy and lonely and therefore creates in order to be loved but a God who is from all eternity a community a tri-community a community of three selflessly loving the other so you can't have it both ways uh, either you give up on the idea that God is essentially love and love is supreme or you hold on to that along with along with the understanding of a triune God okay what's the relevance of this to our passage today everything everything cuz what we see at the cross of Jesus and his death is this eternal fellowship between God the Father and God the Son being severed do you understand this what's happening here Jesus is suffering something no one has ever had to suffer or can ever suffer it's an infinitely greater loss than any loss suffered by anyone this eternal fellowship between God the Son and God the Father is being broken And one theologian commenting on this says, notice his cry is, my God, my God, not my Father, my Father. Meaning, he's here being robbed, at least of the consciousness, the consciousness of his divine sonship, as if he has lost that title for the very first time. That identity for the very first time. He can no longer say to his Father, Abba. See, the manner of Jesus is that, therefore, it's, it's not just physical, you see, it's spiritual, it's relational, it's eternal even, in a sense. It comes with an eternal weight. A consciousness of an eternal loss. Because this is, again, remember the setting. This is the judgment of God coming upon sin. All the sins of God's people falling upon one man, one son, Jesus. The cross, the cross is where Jesus is experiencing hell. The utter forsakenness from God's loving kindness. This is where Jesus suffers his people's hell for them. And this is the sense we employ when we confess in our creed that Jesus descended into hell. And what we mean by that is he suffered the the entirety and totality of God's wrath upon his people who rebelled against him who've chosen to be their own gods and masters of their own faith, to be creatures that deny the Creator and, and suffer all the misery that comes out of that. Jesus took that misery upon Himself. Why? So that suffering and that misery and that wrath would not fall upon us. So that we would instead receive His mercy and His grace and remain in this covenantal relationship with Him where God says, You are my people, You shall be my people, and I shall be your God. That's the manner in which he died, not merely dying physically, suffering physically, but dying and suffering relationally, spiritually, being cut off from the Father's infinite love so he could carry the infinite weight of our sins. It was so that you and I would be spared from this and instead be invited into the eternal fellowship that he enjoyed, he enjoyed, from all eternity with the Father And and here I'm overlapping with the third point already, and then that is the effect of his death, the effects of his death, the application of this on our lives. So let me mention two things. First, um, when you come to realize that Jesus died on the cross for you, here's the first thing that happens. The curtain comes down. Okay, it says in verse 38 that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This current is referring to the thick, almost wall like barrier in the temple that separated everyone, separated everything from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where God's glory, His very glorious presence was dwelling. And it was kept from the people that way, really for their sake, for their safety. But God did. Make it so that one person, the high priest, once a year, will be able to enter that place, the Holy of Holies, with sacrifices that atone for the sins of the high priest and also the people. And this will happen year after year after year. So this current would be this reminder constantly to the Israelites, the chasm between A holy and righteous God and a sinful and guilty humanity. And that curtain, that curtain is torn in two at the moment of Jesus' death. That barrier between the holy of holies and an unholy people is torn in two. And notice how it's torn in two. From where to where? It's from top to bottom. Meaning what? What does that tell us? It tells us it's God doing the tearing. It's top down. It is God who is removing the barrier between the Holy of Holies and, and unholy people. It is God who is paying the price of admitting His people into His house. Again, the price of welcoming sinners into His home, into His presence. And you know what happens when you realize this? When you come to believe this, understanding what God has done to reach you and bring you in, you stop trying to tear this current down on your own from bottom up, okay. Real practically, th- what happens is, this curtain between yourself and acceptability, okay, yourself and justifying your own existence, that curtain comes down. And you no longer have to try to tear that curtain from bottom up. This attempt, for example, to deal with your own sense of deficiency, whatever that may be your sense of inadequacy, your sense of shame and guilt before people and before God, that that ends. Because this current between you and God has been torn top to bottom, you don't need to try to tear it bottom up. You don't have to live to prove your worth by your own means or by your own performance through your achievements, through fame, through wealth, through possessions, through appearance. See, that's bottom up stressing about that, being anxious about that, being perfectionistic about that, and workaholic about these things, that's our attempt to tear this curtain between us and acceptability bottom-up. That ends when you have the cross. You no longer live in a world without the cross. You know how the Jews try to live bottom-up? By keeping the law. And by adding more laws to the law. That's how they sought to perfect themselves and distinguish themselves from others, make themselves admissible into the temple. But the Bible says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. And that the law was really but a shadow, a shadow of the good things to come, not a true form of reality. That it can never, by the, the many sacrifices offered at the temple, make perfect those who draw near, it says in Hebrews. So what does God do? He makes a way. He makes a better way. The author of Hebrews tells us He makes a way for God's people to lose the shadow of acceptance and actually acquire the reality of acceptance. Okay. Grab onto the full reality of full acceptance. How? By gifting us the righteousness of His Son, of Jesus Christ, so we will be acceptable to Him as Jesus has been acceptable to the Father from all eternity. And so it says... This makes Jesus the better high priest who brings us into a better temple through a different curtain. What is the different curtain? His flesh. See, his flesh was torn into so that we would enter now into the fullness of God's presence. It blows open the Holy of Holies and extends that invitation to us by his own offering of his own life. He dies for God's people once and for all, and he does away with all the, all the offerings, all the burnt offerings, all the animal sacrifices, all the law-keeping in order to perfect yourself. The shadows of our performance, they fade away, fade into the background, when we grasp onto the reality of Christ's performance. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean. You see, what can happen at the cross when when you trust in Him, when you believe in Him, you can enter this holy of holies where the presence of God is, with a new heart. The heart sprinkled clean. Your heart becomes clean. And by clean, it means clean enough for God to dwell in. In other words, you become the new holy of holies. You become the new temple of God. The dwelling place of God. How do we know we have this heart? It it changes your performance mentality because the curtain has been torn bottom down. You go from saying, where your, your old heart used to say, I really want to sin, but I shouldn't. Okay? That's, that's a performance mentality. I want to sin, but I shouldn't, so I, I'm going to try not to. Here's what the new heart says. Here's what a heart sprinkled clean says. You know, I really could sin, but I don't want to. I really could sin, but I don't want to. And that's a heart change. That's a a change in your desire. That's a heart that's become the temple of God. God says His dwelling place will be with us, and that means fundamentally our hearts. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? See, when you put your faith in Jesus, you don't just receive forgiveness, you become the Holy of Holies. The very dwelling place of God. And then here's the last thing I'll say about this, and then we'll close. We, the church, as an assembly of such people, we are now, we are now the temple of God, and we have the obligation and really the privilege of welcoming others the way Christ has welcomed others into His Holy of Holies. Jesus Christ brought us into his holy of holies so that we would do the same for others you notice in our passage today who gets into the kingdom immediately after the curtain is torn it's somebody nobody's ever expected it's it's a centurion he's the one who professes that Jesus is truly is truly the son of god remember, do you remember how the gospel of mark began Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And from there on, chapter 1, verse 1, until now, no one, no disciple, no follower of Christ has made this profession about Jesus, that He is the Son of God. At this most climactic moment, when this this beginning thesis is now now being fulfilled, full circle, it's going back to full circle where Jesus is recognized as the Son of God, That climax is not met by one of his disciples, it's not met by a high priest, it's met by a Gentile. And not just any Gentile, a serial killer Gentile, a oppressor of the Israelites kind of Gentile. The Holy of Holies is now open to him. The kingdom of God is open to him, implying what? Jesus, see, he has not only removed the barrier between God and his people, he's removed the barrier between his people and their neighbors. Even their enemies. The call here for us is for us to open up our, our lives, our holy of holies, to receive, to love, to, to reach out to our neighbors and even, even our enemies. Those who are Gentiles to us. We have to continue Jesus' mission of seeking and saving the lost and bringing them into the holy of holies. And I want to encourage you to start here with this thought. You know, how can you apply this even, even more specifically? You know, think about this. How, how, can you, how can you go about bringing to this community, our church, not the rest of you, but the best of you, That's how you recognize this as the Holy of Holies. And if your Holy of Holies has been your career, if if that's been your family, your studies, your romantic relationship, if these areas have gotten the best of you, consider transferring it here now. So you'll make this place where your neighbors and friends and family would come and receive, again, not the rest of you, but the best of you. Because that's what Jesus gave you through his death. Not the rest of him, but the best of him. Is everything. And we owe him that. That should be our proper response. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his death. We thank you for your covenant with him to redeem a sinful people, a sinful humanity that you've chosen out of your own love. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. But you have graciously brought it down to us. You have torn the curtain top to bottom. Free us, Lord. Free us from all of our attempts to be accepted, to be justified, to be recognized, to be loved. Bottom up. Free us from that anxiety. Free us from that performance-driven life. Free us, Lord, by the cross. We pray in your Son's merciful and powerfulness.